Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Beyond the Hype, the inside story of science's biggest media controversies by Fiona Fox, first broadcast live on Thursday the 28th of April 2022. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be here this evening and have this amazing opportunity um, to talk to you all mostly about the themes coming out of my new book, which I have here, uh, which I can show you. I don't know if you can see that well. Um, so, yes, this came out on April the 7th, so it's very new. I actually, I actually wrote the book in a rather... Uh, kind of sleepy time. The Science Media Centre was ticking over very well. I have a fantastic uh, team of staff um, and I spoke to my chairman and he said, why don't you take a, a short sabbatical and write a book about your experiences? So that was in the summer of 2019 and I went to a lovely little house in Donegal and overlooking the, the sea um, and wrote down all the kind of big stories that the Science Media Centre has been involved in, many of which uh, some of you will remember, the younger members might not, some of my younger colleagues uh, can't remember things like Climate Gate and uh, uh, the MMR controversy, um, so depending on your age you might know of them or you might learn about them in the book. Um, but in fact what happened was I finished I finished writing it and then you go through that process, those of you who know anything about this or written a book where you, you get an agent uh, and I got a great agent from the Science Factory called Peter Talek, who's uh, published lots of science books. Uh, and then he found me a publisher and we actually got the publisher on board um, at the beginning of 2020. Um, and there you go. Um, obviously, what then happened was the biggest science story of all. Um, I had no time to to work on editing the book and it basically went on hold. Um, but because of that, actually, um, it is coming out on the 20th anniversary of the Science Media Centre, which is rather neat. So it was on hold for a couple of years. And then um, because the publisher really wanted a chapter on the pandemic, I added that chapter and then, as I say, it was published on the 7th of April, so just a couple of weeks back. Um, so I, I, I'm, I've got about 45 minutes to talk to you tonight. And I thought what I would do is just pull out um, a few of the stories in the book and also some of the kind of overriding themes. And I'll read you a little extract um, later on on one of them and then I'll just finish by telling you some of the other stories so that if you want to ask questions about those or relive your um, experience of those then then please do I'm not able to cover everything in this time so let me start by saying um, why the Science Media Centre was set up in the first place we're an independent press office for science that was set up in 2002 um, and go, go back to the kind of very late 1990s, early noughties and just try and remember what was happening. I was actually working, I don't have a science background, I was working for an overseas aid agency um, but I was getting frustrated there, I'd been there seven years and the media really didn't care that much about the developing world and overseas aid and I kept having to use these rather dull celebrities to get any media 
interest in developing world issues. So I was taking a look as a press officer. I was looking around and thinking, what is the story that's already on the front pages that maybe needs my help, that needs uh, the skills that I bring as a as a generic press officer who knows how to speak to journalists about issues? Um, and it was a lot of it was science. Uh, these were the days where you know BSE. You remember the BSE where um, the government was telling the public the scientists have told us it's completely safe to eat British beef. You cannot contract um, CJD BSE from eating beef. Um, and they claimed that the scientists had told them that. In fact, we later discovered that the scientists had uh, not said anything of the kind. They'd said there's no evidence of it as yet, but there is a theoretical risk um, that, that people could catch um, BSE from eating meat. So that was a big story. And I think there was a real kind of loss of public trust in science because of this line that the government was saying that the scientists got it wrong. Um, and then there was GM. So the, the British public were introduced to this uh, potentially exciting new technology through a massive row. Um, the fact that Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth realised that Monsanto had introduced GM tomato paste into our supermarkets with little or no public discussion, no real understanding of this technology, um, no understanding the risks of the technology. So a worst case scenario, really, it was a row between media savvy campaign groups like uh, um, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and your kind of classic uh, evil multinational Monsanto. Um, and yet all the brilliant, brilliant plant scientists in the UK from Rothamsted Research and John Inner Centre and Edinburgh and places weren't really part of that debate. So that was raging. And then, of course, MMR. I think 1998 was the paper in which um, Andrew Wakefield said this previously uh, trusted safe vaccine, the MMR vaccine, was linked with autism in a study published by The Lancet. So there were all these media frenzies, really. And I started to, I'd always been very pro-science, pro-reason, pro-evidence. Um, and I thought, I think science needs me. Um, and then read an article um in the Financial Times about the Royal Institution agreeing to host uh, this idea with the scientific community wanting to set up a centre, particularly to focus on the kinds of stories I've just mentioned. I think it's very uh, important to understand that the Science Media Centre doesn't do PR for science, and nor are we just uh, uh, like a university press officer who kind of answers questions for journalists. We insert ourselves, and this is why I, I like to think that the book is um, full of kind of exciting and interesting stories. We insert ourselves in the kinds of science stories that have gone wrong or, or could go wrong. So the messy, controversial, contested kind of science uh, that the media love and which tends about which there tends to be a lot of misinformation. So so we were set up in 2002 with that focus, a strong focus on the news media. So we weren't really well, there was very little social media at that stage, but we, we weren't pretending that we were going to be about all science communications or direct to the public public engagement. We thought we would be a very small um, centre. We still are. There's still only five press officers that focus on this beast called the news media. Um, and we actually started with a poll that showed back then it be interested to see if it was different now, but nine out of ten people said that the 
he immediately came up with this phrase of the the media will do science better when scientists do the media better. And I think we we came up with that because in the consultation period before we opened our doors in April 2002, the scientists we spoke to were were, were lamenting the state of the media, um, you know, just just really didn't want to insert themselves into these ongoing controversial debates. The plant scientists would describe to me, you know, we, you know, uh, we've always been annoyed about the fact that it's medical science that gets into the media. Plant, we, we could have a front page of Nature. We could have a, a major um, uh, paper on crop science in a top journal, and you hardly get any media interest because the media just aren't that interested in plant science. And yet, suddenly, they wake up in 1997-89 to be front page news GM crops kill Frankenstein foods um, one classic I remember on the Daily Mirror that you you could find genes in your tomatoes Um, and they kind of weren't ready for that they weren't trained for that it wasn't in their culture some scientists I would say at that stage were getting much better at speaking to journalists when their study was out or, or you know speaking to journalists when they had something they wanted to communicate but it was a kind of one-off they would they would come out from their ivory towers for one day a year speak to some journalists but then firmly go back in what they weren't used to was, was having to stay there was having to stay in the media on a story like GM or MMR or animal research, which just rumbles on and on. It doesn't quite go away. And honestly, the the MMR story, it was definitely kind of four or five years, um, obviously in, in and out of the headlines, but it was it was big news for a long time until the Lancet actually retracted that paper and Andrew Wakefield's research was discredited. That took several years. Um, and scientists needed to be there in numbers and and um, effectively for that period, and they just weren't. And the result was, I think it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons we were set up was a high price was paid um, for the this failure of the scientific community to engage in enough numbers and effectively enough because the public, British public turned against GM, supermarkets withdrew from selling GM. Um, the politicians, there's a great bit in Alistair Campbell's diaries where he he said to Tony Blair, can you stop going on about GM? Because Tony Blair was quite pro-GM. Um, it's unpopular with the voters. Stop talking about it. We should leave it to the scientists. Of course, what what uh, the, the reality was that the scientists weren't doing it either. So that vacuum was left and the consequence was really the public said, we don't trust this. Um, so I think, you know, we... We we were kind of pioneering, I suppose, a new, more proactive approach from the scientific community. And it wasn't it honestly wasn't because we were setting out with this agenda to convince the public to be pro GM, pro animal research, pro nuclear, pro genome editing, whatever. That really wasn't the case. It was our view that it was absolutely fine for the public to be against GM against animal research, against nuclear power, but we just wanted them to have come to those decisions, whether to be in favour or against or uh, sceptical, based on access to the very best information possible. And what was very depressing about the debates over GM and um, MMR and animal research was that they were not getting that access. They were not hearing from the very best scientists um, researching in these areas. They, They were not 
you know, they were often being told about these technologies by campaign groups with an ideological bent against it who were were selectively um, talking about particular studies and selectively choosing the science they wanted the public to see and hear. So I'm going to start in terms of my specific examples um, with one of the chapters, which was about human-animal hybrid embryos. So I don't have a scientific background, so I'm not going to go into uh, all the science. I've tried to make sure that it's accurate in the book. But basically, it was it's, it's the field of stem cell research, and it's the field of therapeutic cloning, um, all, in a, all in a Petri dish, all in a laboratory, not about designer-based babies or human cloning, but just creating these patient-derived stem cells um, that would allow scientists to better understand, you know, very often untreatable diseases, uncurable diseases. So Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, motor neurone disease. So, so quite a few of the scientists were very keen on this approach. Um, it would give them another major tool whereby they could understand they could use these patient-derived stem cells to, to test drugs on. Did, were, were they promising um, on, on motor neurone disease cells or Parkinson's cells? They were very excited about this approach, but it was very, very, very early days. And at the time, the only way they could get these human embryos to to research on was by women um, donating them to scientific research after IVF or whatever. Um, So there was just a shortage of eggs um, available to do this promising area of research. I found out about this very early on. So we set up in 2002. I think I met um, a bunch of the kind of top stem cell scientists in the country in in the early days, people like um, Anne McLaren, who is an amazing scientist, sadly passed away now, Uh, Professor Robin Lovell-Badge, who was then at NIMR, he's now at the Crick Institute, Um, Stephen Minger, who was then at King's. Um, And they all started kind of almost whispering to me um, that they were interested in, in, using animal eggs because it would be the same difference for them it would be human dna but inserted into animal eggs would allow them to do this and animal eggs are plentiful eggs from cows or or rabbits Um, and they'd heard about it from china and and once when i met them they'd actually all been together along with ian wilmot who's interested in this who uh, people will know him as uh, the scientist who cloned dolly the sheep um And they'd been on this fact-finding visit to China and had come back pretty convinced that they wanted to apply to our regulator, the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority. And I immediately, with this new proactive approach, quite a a break from the past, said, great, let's do a press briefing. Let's get all of the national news media into the Science Media Centre and tell them that you're considering this, that you've been to China and that you are preparing to apply to the HFEA. Uh, To say there was shock and awe at this, it was very interesting to me because I'm a press officer who likes to be proactive but you could just tell that nobody had ever said you know this this is the kind of designer babies it's the yuck factor it's the scientists playing god it's Frankenstein everything they feared Um, and yet I was absolutely adamant that the best way was to talk about this to the especially to the science and health and medical journalists so that again that we we learned from GM that it wasn't the other side so to speak that were the 
first people to tell the British public about this. And I could see I, I'm uh, I was born and bred a Catholic, and my mum used to take me on anti-abortion marches and all of these Catholic. I, I could just see it, you know, that the Catholic Church would come out against this and pro-life groups and and other uh, anti-science groups. And I persuaded them. Um, and uh, for the next year or so, we actually did two or three different briefings on this. One was the background uh, about the trip to China and, and the first kind of uh, discussion with the journalists. This was all on the record and there were stories that came out of it. And actually, some of the stories were a bit sensational, big, huge, big pictures of, of rabbits. Or one I remember with the sun was a woman with a cow's head on it. And it said, I'm part part cow, part human. So the headlines and the images were actually quite sensational but the copy underneath them was incredibly accurate and measured and that's because it came from the scientists the journalists went to a press briefing spoke to the scientists got an understanding of what they were trying to do and why all the quotes were from the scientists and you had people like professor chris shaw who is a clinical researcher but who deals with motor neuron disease very impassioned please here saying you know we really want to be able to do this because motor neuron disease is the most horrible disease from diagnosis to death is generally about two years younger people get motor neuron disease and it's a muscle wasting disease in fact the highest number of people who elect to um, go to Holland or wherever to, to have suicide, assisted suicide, or people with MND because of the way that it kills you. Um, so he was desperate to be able to do this, and he joined up with Ian Wilmot to apply for his license, and all of those quotes were in there. So here was a kind of proof of concept for me. If we'd have done this on GM crops, it might have looked very different. And the test of this proof of concept came in about 2005. So we'd run about three or four briefings between 2002, 2005, um, and basically we discovered there was the HFEA Act was being reviewed, and the white paper, which is the draft legislation, was published. And I suddenly got a bunch a phone call saying we've read it have you seen it have you seen it Fiona um, there is a line in it that says the government will ban all research on human animal embryos um, and when we inquired a bit further they had decided to ban it uh, because they'd run a consultation which we didn't even know anything about which had been very quick and dirty and the church and religious groups had found out and it's very dominated um, by church groups um, and they'd said the yuck factor, basically. Um, so the government saw that and thought, right, we're not going to we're not going to um, have that debate. So we'll ban this research. And again, I I just feel like five, ten years earlier, um, the scientists might have just accepted that. But we were in a different phase, not just because of the Science Media Centre, but but because, you know, the people who set us up with the scientific community and they wanted a more proactive approach. So we got all the scientists together. We we briefed them about this. The government was going to ban their research. We held a big press conference. We made sure it was embargoed. It was a Friday for Monday. And basically on the Monday morning, the front page of every single paper was this, the backlash from the scientists against this proposed ban. And then there was a period, you can read all this in the book, there was a period of about six months, I think, where between the um, white paper to ban this research and the vote in Parliament. And I can honestly say there wasn't a single development in this story in this six months where the scientists didn't have their say. One of them was quite funny because it was um, it was over Easter and my mum, who's an Irish Catholic, had come to London and I'd taken her to church 
um, for Good Friday, I think it was. And to my absolute dismay, uh, the letter quite often um, on, on an Easter weekend, the letter that's read out at the church over Easter is the official letter that's being read out in every church, uh, every Catholic church in the country. It's like the Easter message. And the Easter message was against human animal hybrid embryos. Um, and they defined them completely incorrectly as half animal, half human, which was not true. Um, and I literally left my mum in the church, ran out, got on the phone to Colin Blakemore, Robin Lovell Badge, Anne McLaren, all these people, um, and was standing outside the church writing their quotes and then sending them to the journalists. And for the whole of Easter, the scientists were in studios challenging the, the Catholic Church's line, talking about the misinformation and explaining yet again. Uh, and then, as you will see, um, when the vote actually happened, by then MPs had been lobbied, the policy departments of the Association of Medical research charities which was very pro this research the welcome trust the medical research council had been lobbying the politicians while we'd been focusing on the news media so getting to the public and also getting to the politicians and it was an overwhelming vote in favor of allowing this research to continue didn't mean the research would work didn't mean this approach was going to be a success but that we should not be banning areas of research because of the yuck factor and what was interesting the next day after the vote there were several articles in national newspapers which weren't about the vote but were about the scientists and the way the change so the ft had an editorial saying scientists behave like they never have before the times a piece by mark henderson the then science editor and uh, and there was a real um they had noticed people had noticed that the scientific community had found their voice on controversial issues in a way that hadn't been seen over BSE, GM, MMR, animal research. So that's one of the chapters. Um, the other one that I wanted to talk about, which is a real theme of the book, I think, in almost every chapter this comes out, is the need for openness. And I think this goes back to that point I was making a bit earlier about not wanting to and of course there are campaign groups that do this but not wanting to talk about science in order to win the argument about animal research or nuclear power or synthetic biology but but to have maximum openness to allow the scientific arguments to be heard so if the public are more persuaded for example on drugs uh if they're more persuaded by the police or the daily mail <coughs> than they are by david nutt or whatever on on the harms of ecstasy and cannabis then that's fine they <coughs> science isn't the only language that we need to speak um, but we, we, what we felt so strongly about was we need maximum openness so that all the scientists in the UK are able and empowered and supported to speak out on these controversial issues. Um, and one of the ones that was very shocking for me where that openness did not exist to a, to a pretty dismaying extent was the issue of animal research so like I say when I started um, um, in fact when when I started only a few weeks later Cambridge University made the announcement 
that they would no longer be building a new research facility for animals in Cambridge University for one reason and one reason only because of the huge and violent protests against this new laboratory. So so a top university in the UK pulled out of building a new facility to do animal research because of the protests. Um, and of course, that made it SMC territory. It was headline news. It was important. It was something the public were talking about. So I went round and started to meet universities and talk to people about um, who was speaking in their university on animal research and basically found a complete vow of silence. It was that the, the animal research being done in, in research institutes and universities was was like their dirty little secret. You know, you would you would go to an animal facility, which I wanted to do because I didn't actually know whether I was personally pro-animal research and I wanted to go into animal labs and meet the scientists and meet the vets and the animal technicians and and see for myself whether the standards were high and and the regulations were being enforced etc um and I did that for a few months but but when I did it it was always maximum secrecy I wasn't allowed to tell people where I was going the the university would have all these buildings with big you know big titles on them the school of zoology or the uh the 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 school of biology um but the these buildings were very kind of hidden. And I remember coming to actually going to a meeting about openness on animal research at the Wellcome Trust. It was my first visit to the Wellcome Trust on the Euston Road. Um, I don't know if you've picked up that I'm quite a loud person. Uh, some 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 people say I don't have a volume knob. So I walked in very loudly to the reception and said, I'm here for the meeting on animal research, at which the receptionist, two of them said, shh, we don't use the A word. Um, and that ended up being the title of the chapter in my book, because I was very struck by it. Here's a, a major funder of science. If anybody who's doing biological sciences is probably using animals in that science, but but their policy was to call the meeting something else. Um, and they didn't appreciate me uh, <laughs> saying very loudly that I was here for this meeting on animals. So um, this became a major issue and the chapter goes through my attempts with, with others, ne never just me, but um, to persuade and cajole the research community to speak out more openly. One of the really big things I did was persuade, because I'd been so impressed by the standards when I visited animal labs, I persuaded a number of universities and research institutes to invite people like Fergus Walsh, the medical editor of the BBC, uh, Robin McKee, I remember taking to one facility from the Observer. So trusted science journalists, but into these facilities and really lifting the lid um, and, and opening up. And it was very hard. There were there were directors of communications in universities who until then, until I started talking about animals, were biting my hand off. You know, what, what can the Science Media Centre do to add value to our press office, to, to raise the profile of our science in our university? You know, please do a briefing on this. Please get journalists interested in this. Until I said, well, I understand that you've got 
scientists who are keen to speak about animal research, but they tell me that you're discouraging them. And then they would say, oh, Fiona, you, you have to understand we can't speak out about this. It's not on our website. We actually remove it. I remember being very shocked by that. We actually remove any reference to the use of animal models from our press releases, which apart from anything else is really bad science communication. Because if you're saying, I don't know, um, breakthrough in eye research, you know, could could help um, people with macular degeneration to see again, but the animal model is a rat or, or a mouse, and you remove the reference to the animal model, and then everyone thinks this was a human trial and that we're much closer to a cure for blindness. So on every level, um, I just felt this was wrong, and I ended up... Um, arguing with quite a lot of heads of communications plus being sometimes being really angry you know there were there were um a small group and i mean small i honestly think it was probably 10 or 20 people like colin blakemore uh, nancy rothwell was one who did it from manchester university um roger lemon from ucl who were brave enough to speak out on their use of animals and who were being targeted by animal rights extremists their their families were being threatened there's a piece in my book from colin blakemore's daughter sarah jane blakemore who's now a scientist herself talking about how horrendous their childhood was but they were being left to do it alone they were not getting the support of their university or their university comms team. Um, and I remember one saying that he'd won a, a big award um, for his science. It wasn't for, for speaking on animals. Um, but because he had kept speaking on animals, the university wouldn't put his award into their magazine. So I, I became very frustrated with the kind of collective, I would say, collective lack of courage. And, you know, what I used to say to them is, if if you don't think animal research is ethical, then that's fine by me. I, I, don't, I didn't come to this with a position. Well, then don't do it. <laughs> but if you're doing it in every research institute, in every biology department, in every university across the country, then speak out about it. So the chapter basically charts the efforts that we made um, and getting together. Everybody that we saw was on our side on this and really, really pushing for, for a new <clears throat> approach. And finally, we did, we actually decided we had this plan. I can't remember when it was, probably... 2012, 2013, so this is not very long ago, we we sat in a meeting in the Wellcome Trust and said, what about some kind of concordat? What about strength in numbers? Because often scientists would say, my worry is that if this university speaks out, we'll become the next Cambridge. And by the way, in between, um, Cambridge saying no, uh, that uh, pulling out of building their new facility, Oxford did dis announce that they, or it was found out that they were going to build a new facility and the protest just literally moved from Cambridge to Oxford. So, so everybody else, all the other universities were looking at the, you know, the security costs and the misery of having protests outside the university every day and the media spotlight on this and thinking, I don't want to go there. So one of the big approaches that we were pioneering was um, kind of strength in numbers. And we came up with this idea of a declaration of openness on animal research, where we would approach every university. And we actually worked with journalists, Clive Cookson from the Financial Times, um, Tom Fielden, science editor of the Today programme. They were, they were getting crossed themselves. They weren't being allowed access to animal facilities. They weren't getting comments when they needed them. I remember um, Fergus Walsh and his producer, Rachel Buchanan, 
um, phoning me from a train to Oxford where they were they had um, secured an interview for the 10 o'clock news that night with the protesters outside but they'd called the comms team in the university and said we're interviewing the protesters can we interview a scientist and the comms team hadn't provided them with a scientist so they had to phone me to get them a, a scientist to go on the 10 o'clock news otherwise it would have just been the protesters so so we did this it took about six months to get 18 universities I'll admit there was a bit of playing them off against each other so I you know I would say to Imperial well Oxford and Cambridge are going to sign this declaration and they'd say really and I'd say yes I feel sure they're going to and then Imperial would run around and say well I think we we are going to look bad if we don't sign it and and at the same time uh, Clive Cookson of the Financial Times did a, a major feature in which he surveyed every top university on their openness so this wasn't about their use of animals it was about are you open about it do you admit it on your website do you allow journalists to see your so the pressure was started it was the the pressure had been from the activists and the extremists which was to keep your head down and, and never say anything suddenly this was changing and the pressure and the uh, the reputational damage actually was now coming from hiding your animal research um and uh mark Walpert was head of the Wellcome Trust at the time when we got 18 universities to sign on to this declaration. He then agreed to actually put the some money and um, some resources behind turning it into a concordat. Understanding Animal Research, the organisation set up to uh, make the case for the use of animals, was given money and resources by the Wellcome Trust to to have a a concordat on openness. And now it's been a fantastic success and over 100 organisations have signed up to that and it commits them. They have to have a statement on their website. They have to have photographs of their facilities. They have to invite MPs, uh, school students, etc., into their facilities a number of times of year. So it's completely transformed it. And what I've noticed... Um, is it's completely pulled the rug from under the um, animal rights extremists and activists because they did really, really well because they they were able to say the scientific community hide what they're doing on animals. It must be bad because they're hiding it. Um, and I think it stands to reason, doesn't it, that, that if if you hear that and then you look everywhere for, for um, numbers of animals being used and what those animals are being used about and you see that no, no one in science gives you that information, then you're minded to believe that they've got something to hide. So the openness agenda has been brilliant. One of my favourites was where every single year there was media coverage of a BUAV press release, which used to add up all the numbers. BUAV is the um, the anti-animal research campaign and they used to go to they would get the numbers of animals used in the previous year from the top 10 I think universities um, and it was millions it is millions it is millions um, so they would say millions of animals used and then they would um, have all these um often mostly inaccurate examples of the horrendous um, inhuman, painful, degrading experiments to which these animals were subjected. Um, and again, I went round, we held a meeting um, about five years ago, got all the directors of comms of these universities and said, why, why are you letting this story appear every year? Why don't you do it? Why don't you do exactly the same press release? Um, get all your numbers together 
put them in one press release, which is what exactly what BUAV are doing, but then do the positive case studies, show that, for example, the drug Herceptin, which has been an absolute lifesaver in cancer research, um, came from research on a very, very small number of primates. You know, tell these stories. Obviously, now this year, that could be uh, the vaccine, the, the COVID vaccine, the Oxford AstraZeneca jab, that um, involved animal research. So um, I think that is my kind of big success story of how openness really um, for the public is in the public interest. And openness does not mean always defending animal research. Openness means telling the truth about animal research, admitting to the mistakes um, and admitting to the improvements that need to be made. But it is it is using your voice and it is not hiding it. So my third example, and um, and then I will uh, allow you to go and have a, a break, maybe get, get yourself a drink if you've got one in the fridge, um, is um, of, and again, a theme running through the book, of something that has kind of increasingly worried me. And 20 years in on the 20th anniversary is probably my biggest worry. And that is the the way that independent publicly funded scientific data gets kind of almost inadvertently accidentally pulled into the government communications service um and it took me a few years to notice this and i think it's got worse i think it's got considerably worse um and what i mean by this is that i think most of you watching this will expect that if science is conducted in a national laboratory even if that's owned by the government but by scientists by researchers they they are asked to look into e-cigarettes or they're asked to look into, uh, do research on um, whether or not the badger cull is, is effective in preventing TB um, or, or indeed during the pandemic, um, a whole host of kind of national studies. So the, the information itself, the research, the science, the experiments are conducted in what you and I, I think, would see as independent, publicly funded scientific organisations. But because they are commissioned by the government, because they are funded by the government, because some of those laboratories, um, even if they're, you know, up in York or uh, which AFA is one of the DEFRA laboratories or out in, you know, leafy parts of Reading or Cambridge and, and staffed by what you and I would recognise as research scientists, um, they are owned by the government. And so one way or another, the, the science, I think, is done independently. So I'm not sitting here telling you that there is some kind of sinister interference by politicians in, in the science itself. But, and I think this is hidden from view, when they finish the science, they give it to the government communication system to uh, make the key decisions about when, how, and who communicates the results of that. And my big goal, I, I would so love to achieve this. I haven't made any progress. It's been the thing I've had the least success on, um, is separating the communication of scientific data 
from the government com- communication system. The government communication system is what it is. It is set up, and if you look, if you Google this, uh, I can't remember how they describe it, but it's very explicitly that the government communication system, so this is press offices in all the different departments and in number 10 and in the cabinet office, to promote the ideas and the messages of the government in power. Makes sense to me. That's not science. That is political. That is politicised. So if scientific data is inconvenient for the messages of the current government, then, and I've definitely seen this happen, then if those press officers are in charge, they will say, we would prefer that there's no press briefing on this particular evidence because it's quite inconvenient for something that the prime minister is doing this week or we were, this happened in the pandemic to us a lot, where scientists who were gathering data for at the request of the government for the Department of Health or BASE were were told, can you please um, publish that data with the Science Media Centre, but in a couple of days, because we don't want it to come before the Downing Street press conference or whatever. So the timing, which is sometimes actually very important, um, was being decided by the government communications officers um, and university press officers were, were somehow having to go along with that because because the funding <coughs> was from the government and because it was the government that asked for this. And I'm very worried about that and I see it intensifying. But I thought what I'd do as I come to the end is to give you a little bit of a, a flavour of the book because I've talked to you mostly about issues, but the book is actually very story-led. Um, um, and... Yes, I just thought I'd give you a bit of a, a read a little section um, about this area um, and the story of the sacking of David Nutt by the government. So it's just a couple of pages. I heard the news that Professor David Nutt had been sacked as the government's drug czar in late October 2009 while I was driving my young son Declan to the cinema. It was half term and so far my plans to spend time with him had been largely thwarted by events at work. I was determined to have one day off and arrange the cinema trip. It was my son Declan who took the call from a colleague as I was driving and relayed the news as we were on the busy North Circular Road. My initial shouty expletives were followed by instructions to Declan to call some of the names saved in my phone to break the news to them and tell them that I would phone them later. This quickly got very confusing. At one point, Declan informed Mark Henderson, science editor of The Times, that Mark Henderson had been sacked. No one could ever accuse me of a slick PR operation. I didn't abandon that cinema trip, but I did sneak out of the film for a while to work with my colleagues to gather instant responses from across the scientific community. Professor Nutt is one of the UK's leading neuropsychopharmacologists, specialising in research on drugs that affect the human brain. In January 2008, he had been appointed by the Home Secretary, the then Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, as chair of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, ACMD, or the Drug SAR, as the role is referred to more popularly. The news of his sacking, less than two years later, wasn't entirely a shock. 
earlier in 2009, Nutt had been very publicly taken to task by Smith after doing media work on a study he had published that suggested the risks involved in taking ecstasy were statistically no more significant than those of horse riding. Smith had taken to the airways to rebuke her own drugs advisor and demand that he apologise to the families of young people who had died after taking ecstasy, saying, I'm sure most people would simply not accept the link that he makes up in his article between horse riding and illegal drug taking. Good scientists do not make things up, of course, and Professor Nutt is a very good scientist. One who for some years had been speaking in the media about his scientific work on evidence-based approaches to drug classification. He cited research in support of his conclusions that illicit drugs should be classified according to the actual evidence of the harm they cause, pointing out that alcohol and tobacco cause more harm than LSD, ecstasy and cannabis. Smith's objection to Nutt was not based on a critique of his methods or the reliability of his conclusions, Her problem, it seemed, was that his findings were inconvenient to government policy and deeply unpopular with sections of the public and the press. After a day of headline reporting, the Home Secretary's call for him to say sorry to bereaved parents, Nutt actually issued an apology. I was upset at his decision to do that. He was not a politician who had made a gaffe and needed to apologise to save his career. He was an eminent scientist discussing his research findings in the pages of a learned scientific journal. I called him that night to ask him why he had agreed to apologise. He explained that he had done so because he felt he could do more good and achieve more of an evidence-based drugs policy by staying on as chair of the ACMD. Ultimately, his apology was not enough. Fast forward eight months and Alan Johnson, now Home Secretary, but the tension between minister and advisor remained. Things came to a head thanks to a scientific lecture that Nutt had given comparing the relative harms of drugs, including cannabis and alcohol. The lecture itself had been delivered months earlier at King's College London, and the evidence he drew on had been published in a peer-reviewed journal, most notably in a 2007 paper in The Lancet about scales of harms from different drugs, including cannabis, alcohol, tobacco and harder drugs such as cocaine. As chair of ACMD, Nutt had to submit such talks to officials at the Home Office, and on that occasion, they had given him the all clear. But in October 2009, his speech was then published as a review article by the event organisers, and it was picked up in the media. It was amid the resulting media fury that the Home Secretary sacked him. If Nutt had been ready to bend to the government after Smith's warning, he was in no mood to go quietly now. Like other scientists before and since, he learned the hard way that if you fall out of favour with government, the government press officers who are meant to look after you are more likely to be briefing against you than setting up your interviews. This was exactly the kind of story the Science Media Centre was expected to work on. It was contested science in the headlines and it highlighted the way the government was prepared to misuse science when it didn't fit with its preferred policies. It also moved the debate about relative harms of drug use onto the front pages of learned scientific journals, sorry, from learned scientific journals into the news headlines, providing an opportunity for scientists in this field to engage the wider public. Not many research studies on drug harms make it onto the front pages, but they were on there now. So that will give you a flavour of the way I write the stories in the book, but it will also, I think, um, tell you why we are concerned about this and why, in our view, 
independent scientists, even if they're advising the government <clears throat> or even if they are funded by the government or working in laboratories um, that are owned by the government, should be able to put their scientific evidence into the public domain, communicate it to science and health and environment journalists free from um, the government communications machine. And I'm using the um, uh, um, opinion pieces and opportunities like this that I've been given um, to make that point. I can see Gerald on the screen. I can see it's 10 to 8. And actually, that's exactly where I was going to finish. I was just going to tantalise you by listing that other uh, chapters in the book um, that you can read about in a similar vein to that one are the climate gate the story of poor old professor phil jones's 10 years of emails being stolen um, and put up on a website by climate skeptics uh, the store the sorry saga of professor tim hunt the uh, uh, question mark sexist scientist sexist professor um, a another sorry story some of them are good news but of um, the intimidation of researchers working on mecfs um, i've told you already that we've got a, a chapter on the pandemic um, Fukushima and other crises and then a couple of chapters on <clears throat> uh, more fundamentally about what science journalists or what journalism tends to get wrong um, and also the role of science press officers. So that was where I was planning to end and uh, I'm very happy to let you all have a break. I'm going to get myself a very large glass of wine and enjoy hearing your thoughts and answering your questions. Now, let's move to your questions. I have to start with the most important question of them all at the beginning. Slava Ukraini asks us, do you have a pet and can we see it? Um, I do have a pet, uh, a relatively recent phenomena. Um, and hold on one second, I'll see if I can just grab my pet. Kevin, could you bring Roshu down? Okay, we'll try and bring her down. <laughs> I, ha I have a cat who is apparently currently sleeping on the top of the wardrobe, but um, oh. my ha my husband is informed that if if he can get her, uh, she may or may not make an appearance. <laughs> okay, while we're waiting, let's dive in. <laughs> More on the subject then. Okay. Also, cheers, everyone. I've got a very large glass of uh, white wine here. So, um... What about cheers? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Cat's question. What <laughs> current or recent science coverage makes you want to pull your hair out the most? Oh, great question. So, um, bits of, of COVID, the lab leak versus natural origins, I want to turn my hair out of that because it could be either, but it has been made such a polarised issue um, and a real toxic issue such that some scientists just don't want to speak about it anymore. And it's become a kind of very politicised, a bit like some of the other things like face masks or whether you vaccinate children, they suddenly, oh, yes, here we go, everybody. Uh -huh, <laughs> this is... This is Roisin. Uh, she's one year old, and uh, yeah, she's very cute. 
She's our first pet that we've ever had. We're, we're generally not pet people, but in the pandemic, is, is we, that enough we got for you a cat. I have that seen enough. enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sure the appreciation <laughs> of your talk just went from 10 to 11. <laughs> <laughs> or not to ten. Um, so yeah, that, that, that yeah, I think there they should be science issues. They should be um, reasoned discussions about where the evidence lies, what the what the different hypotheses could be, um, and kind of adding up. You know, it's it obviously, clearly, perfectly possible that it could have leaked from a lab, and yet it does seem that the the majority of evidence is is. Um, pointing to natural origins but instead of just having that interesting important mm. discussion and learning from it we've taken camps you know we've got the the pro lab leak camp and i think that so that makes me tear my hair out um the other one that before the pandemic was was pretty tough actually was e-cigarettes um I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why, but the, certainly the scientists on our database who worked on smoking cessation, good publicly funded independent scientists in the UK, um, and they were, they, they were doing studies to prove it, were showing that um, e-cigs are significantly better than smoking, which doesn't mean there's no risk and doesn't mean we have to, we shouldn't investigate the particular risks of certain kind of substances involved in e-cigarettes. But a lot of the studies were coming from the States and you would get a science journalist writing a good, you know, big uh, UK study. And then the next day there'd be a survey um, from, from somewhere else showing, you know, on the front page showing that they'd asked 20 teenagers whether e-cigarettes were a gateway to smoking and 19 out of 20 had said yes or something. So it mm. felt to me a little bit like... Um, on that one, the public were not getting access to the best science. They were they were hearing on a daily basis that e-cigarettes were a gateway to smoking, potentially as dangerous as smoking. And I think that one upset me because we were finding it hard to 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 just point the journalist to where the weight of evidence is. And because there's a very obvious life and death thing here um, for for whatever the the risks of e-cigarettes for people who are lifelong smokers to switch from smoking tobacco to an e-cigarette is is highly favourable. Um, and if that message wasn't getting across, you could actually have people die um, because of the media coverage. So, yeah. Yeah. Good. Now, let's see. Follow-up question from Igor. When fighting bad actors that are using bad rhetoric to peddle misinformation, do you think uh, we should be using their tactics? No. Do you think using their tactics is justified for us, I guess, or for you? Or is it a question of they go low, we go high? Um, I, I, I'm going to say they go low, we go high. I, li I like that expression. Um, and, and actually, it goes back to what I was just saying about these um, these polarised discussions that we saw in the pandemic. And, you know, we all know, don't we, that we're living in a much more kind of polarised society generally. But I, I, I have to say that I, I actually get upset when I see scientists putting themselves into camps and shouting at people. And, you know, and, and rather than 
acting in good faith. And rather than, you know, one of the things um, I felt sometimes during the pandemic is the one group of people that could have shown um, how, how you disagree well doesn't mean you're not passionate doesn't mean you're not absolutely in disagreement about whether face masks work or not whether we should vaccinate young children or not i'm not at all saying we should behave that these aren't very important scientific differences but i do think the scientific community has got a long track record of having those debates out. and in the end you how do you answer them you answer them with good science so you have your argument you put forward your hypothesis and it's your favorite hypothesis but whether you're right or not is demonstrated by your data and by your experiment um, and I felt that some scientists didn't they didn't show everyone else how to have these debates instead they they said I'm in the pro face mask camp and you're wrong and then and then they started even even certainly on social media which is you know it's like that anyway but they started blocking each other and and talking about I mean that's another issue there is real harassment, but but when scientists describe disagreement as you're harassing me, you're bullying me, I'm blocking you, then they to me they sound like everyone else on on social media and on Twitter. So so yes, absolutely. My answer to that is we go high. And also to be honest, the Science Media Centre is we we don't take to. I mean, obviously we tweet all of our content, but we don't get involved in Twitter debates. Mm, makes sense. Can't windows anyway, I heard. Good. Along the same lines, a question from Wombat Hollywood. How is your office dealing with an increase in press articles just being a collection of tweets used to debunk good, good science? How are we dealing with them? I'm not, I, I, I actually don't know how to answer that. I mean, the if journalists phone us and ask us to deal with them. Mm. Um, otherwise, how would we kind of know about them? If they, they phone us and say, I'm putting together this piece, um, can you get some scientists to respond? Obviously, we're a, we're a pretty standard press office and we'll, yeah. we'll get them good people. I think I'll tell you something interesting. Um, we, I was talking to an editor at the Times um, who was actually showing me around the newsroom, um, and she was showing me, you know, the, the crime, the crime reporters, and the sports reporters, and the political reporters, and and the science reporters. And she said in passing that the science reporters use social media less than anybody else on the time. Increasingly, the political journalists, sports journalists are getting stories directly from Twitter. Okay. And she said, weirdly, weirdly, the science journalists don't seem to do that as much. <laughs> and, and I think it's because of the journals. I think the, you know, one of the interesting things about science, which I loved actually when I came in, was that they weren't all random stories that kind of rose to the top based on who shouted the loudest. The, the daily diet of a science or a health or environment journalist mm -hmm. in our national news continues to be hasn't changed continues to be what is in nature science lancet bmj plus jam you know the big you know 15 journals they still um they look on eureka every morning yep. to see what's being published and that's where they get their story so i'm not saying they don't get them from twitter um but i don't think they rely on social media as much as other journalists okay Along those lines, a question for me. We hear a lot about the demise of science journalism, less and less science journalists being employed by newspapers and media organizations. Does that impact your work? 
because I guess the people who are now asking you questions or to provide um, a scientist to speak to might not necessarily be science journalists anymore. Yeah. Um, brilliant question. And I know that you've got quite a lot of international um, people joining to this. It honestly depends what country. Okay. Um, we well, First point to make... I love the specialist journalists. You you want the real problem, as you just said, the real problem days, the ones where my swearing levels are maximum, is when a science story is covered by general news reporters, um, you know, whoever was on the news desk on the day. You get this a lot of weekends, actually. Political journalist, worst of all. Um, but we, we, for some reason, I've never been able to really work out on the whole, on the whole, we have kept our specialist science journalists. And one editor, I actually had a lunch with the editor of The Telegraph um, a few years ago in a kind of round table. And I asked him, like, why, why, unlike the US and New Zealand and Australia, we've got science media centres in other countries and they really have. I mean, CNN closed down their entire science unit. Oh overnight like eight journalists lost their jobs um the new zealand science media center was run by peter griffin who was the last full-time science journalist on a new zealand newspaper at that time and he came over and ran the science media center so in other countries it's been really bad in the uk we kept them and when i asked the editor of the telegraph he said we did actually get a bit bruised by mmr because of the way that story ended up um, where the paper wasn't right, it was discredited, and MMR wasn't linked with autism, and yet a lot of the media had run that. You know, the, a very safe vaccine programme had reduced to the 70-80%, uh, which was below yeah. what was needed for herd immunity. He felt that they needed their scientists. And I'll tell you a really the most positive thing I'll say uh, tonight, and, and let's hope it, it stays, Every science and health journalist I've spoken to in the last few weeks say that their status in the newsroom because of the pandemic has just risen and risen. They've had actual okay. editors at their desk saying, what do you think of this? Where do you think this story is going? So I think the pandemic has been the worst tragedy any of us have ever lived through. But one small positive is that they know that the best journalism was from the science and health editors who'd covered these. You know, a lot of the, say Sarah Bosley at The Guardian, you know, she, she's covered MERS, SARS, Ebola. She's a global health expert, so she knows about infectious. These beats, what they call beat reporters, knew their stuff and got it right. And, and the media wanted that during the pandemic. So, so yeah, it does. It, it's a good question. It does matter. And we need to keep them. And everyone watching this should, if they get an opportunity, champion the specialist science correspondents. For all their flaws, um, they're the best we've got. That's encouraging. That's good. Mm. Okay, let's see. Next question, again from Igor. What are your thoughts on the debate about open access to scientific papers? Will it help combat scientific misinformation or people will not read it anyway? Well, this, I mean, I'd, I do not know a huge amount. This is This is a good example of a discussion that is uh, huge within science, but has not hit the news agenda. Yeah. In fact, I once ran a briefing on, I can't remember who it was with now, but it was on open access publishing because so many scientists were talking to me about it. I'd almost forgotten that my job is to, 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 to run uh, things that the journalists are actually interested in. And I ran a briefing and there were 
there were about two journalists in the room. I think one was the Times Higher um, and one was Nature News. So the national news media are not interested in this debate. Okay. Where I am interested in it, uh, very interested, is, is around, this is this is less open access and more just open science generally, preprints. So we, we worked with um, a big group of journals and university press officers before the pandemic. We had several meetings and we came up with a set of guidelines which I can share with people if they want them about um, advising people not to publicize preprints to the media and I just want to express we love preprints we think preprints are great um, but what was happening was that press officers were publicizing the preprint to the media and the, and the newspapers were reporting it at that stage yeah. uh, when it's very early very preliminary and it, what it, it hadn't gone pe- through peer review but it also hadn't gone through the just the general things that that journals add you know the editing mm-hmm. process and whatever um, and it was it was not good we were getting kind of ad hoc stories all over the place of preprints of varying quality and then even the really good ones would then be published in nature the journalists would ignore them because because they oh, already didn't spoken about them. Did, yeah didn't didn't old the news. bbc run that it was old news so uh, the the scientists were a bit naive about oh we'd love to get this in the media but then when it was published in the big journal they weren't so so i think in the pandemic we needed preprints i mean obviously we needed speed and 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 there were very good preprints and there were very terrible preprints but actually we started the discussion um uh, 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 just now about whether we should go back to that policy that in terms of press releasing uh, the public that and i think I, I would sum it up by saying would you like the public to be hearing about you know whether does white wine cause cancer or does it cure cancer would you like them to be hearing that from a study that's at its very best. Why not just wait until that study is at its best? And the preprint helps it to be at its best because it allows the opportunity for other scientists to make it better. And I would prefer to wait. Yeah, that's a good point. Good, I think we'll finally getting around to the question by skeptical fella. He said, I'll read the book, promise. But can you talk a little bit more about examples you may have seen of government putting pressure on scientists during the pandemic? Um, so, yes, I can. Um, the ones, I think there's, there's obviously the, it's really complicated story, this, and there are the government-owned agencies. I think they're called arms-length bodies. They're called different things, but say Public Health England, uh, uh, which is now UKHSA, UKHSA, um, they are a government body, Um and they were definitely because they their communications people are part of the government communications machine. Mm-hmm. They were often um, not allowed to just put their data out. And you had things like, for for example, you had things. Do you remember the? Oh God, was it the Kent variant or the Delta variant? But you know that awful moment running up to Christmas where there was a new variant and it was we thought it was more transmissible and more deadly um and and oh it was just a horrible time wasn't it where we all the kind of specter of having to cancel christmas but the announcement that they made about that variant they made Mm. without any data that that data existed they were all looking at that data but the data had been generated by public health england um 
and the government announced that, the journalists were all phoning us saying, we can't assess this data. They've made an announcement saying there's a new variant. We can't look at it. We then, of course, couldn't do what we do, which is we ask really top scientists, government have made this announcement that there's a new variant. Can you look Mm -hmm. at the data and give us your assessment of whether it's important, whatever? The scientists couldn't look at it. The public couldn't look at it. The journalists couldn't look at it. But it was out there. And I think that was just awful. And I had one text from a journalist saying this is the worst day of science communication. Um, And I think a lot of the scientists in those agencies who are gathering that data were very frustrated. And that's why I'd like to see this separation. There's government messaging. I get that. Government have to put out messages, stay at home wash your hands but then there's the data and i think the data should be put into the public domain and then the government can spin it one way scientists can react so that was one just one more um the government commissioned all of these studies so they they became official studies and there were prevalence studies and serology studies and um uh, clinical studies so i think there was something like 50 big clinical studies that were done between DH commissioned them, but they were done in in hospitals, like clinical trials, I guess, um, and universities. But because DH commissioned them, they controlled the communication. So we had this experience of one was, I think, the Cambridge Biostats unit where they had their data. They knew that they were going to get their data probably every week or every two weeks about the number of uh, cases and all of that. Um, But the government said they didn't want them doing press conferences with us. And different scientists are different. You know, the the REACT study, the the scientists did actually insist we are going to do press conferences with the Science Media Centre. But they still allowed the government to kind of determine the timing of those press conferences. And sometimes they were saying, we don't want it today because the Downing Street press conference is tonight. But the Cambridge group actually were were they were they were told that the government didn't want it so they didn't do press conferences so i i just feel like what we need before the next pandemic is some kind of code of practice or some kind of legislation that says data that is gathered by publicly funded scientists in our universities is owned by and i gather in the chat there's been a really interesting discussion about who own who owns yes. this you know, sometimes the government does own it. They paid for it. They asked for it. They, they, the scientists do it and they give it to them. But I think the public would argue that this is publicly funded data done in independent organisations. We, the public, own it. So, you know, we, yeah. but that's quite a big uh, thing to persuade the government of. That's true. Actually, I find it's quite funny. We now have a question that goes the other way around. Garnet asks... Do you know of any examples of governments supporting under-fire scientists or research against press popular opinion and their best interests? Oh, can I think? Because uh, I, I think it would be churlish not to, because in, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to be balanced about this, the government commissioned all of those studies. So here we have the government. um, And actually, one of the reasons sometimes that the scientists don't want to speak against the government is precisely because the government asked them to do an incredibly important piece of work Mm. to help the nation during a pandemic. They gave them the money, they gave them the support, 
and they allowed them to do that independently because one of the things I, I do make a distinction here is there is no political interference in the actual work it's yeah. the political the political management comes in the communication of the work to the public so I do think there is a lot of, there are a lot of people within the government and I think the chief scientific advisors network led by Patrick Valance but with a chief scientific advisor in every department does uh, uh, persuade governments to be pro-science on occasions and they have absolutely you know what one of the um, stories I told in my introduction was about animal research and you had two science ministers um, who were they were both labor science ministers David Sainsbury Mm-hmm. Um, and then followed by Paul Drayson, who was a science minister for several years. They both came out repeatedly to back scientists being open on animal research. Paul Drayson was actually, before he became the science minister, had been the head of Powderject, which was a vaccine company. He'd been targeted. He'd been actually threatened. His life had been threatened. He had a panic okay. button in his house. He was, and so he was really so. So yeah, I definitely think there are are examples of where the government has supported scientists um, who are being targeted or being yeah, yeah. Good to hear. Good. Paul, also known as Picticule, has got a question. On the subject of animal research, did you ever come across research on animals that you considered unethical? If so, was there anything you could do about it? I didn't. I mean, I've probably, I've probably been, in 20 years, I've probably been in 10 animal laboratories. Okay. Um, so... And I probably wouldn't even know what to look for. But let me give you a couple of examples. One was a brilliant vet um, who, I'm trying to think of her name and I just can't think of her name, Sarah, somebody who worked in, in Oxford. And a point she made to me was that she had been into a lab, an, an animal lab, um, where mice were... <laughs> running around in, in all directions away from their mother and scut- scuttling about and she was pointing out to the scientists you realize that they should be in conditions where they're nesting something like this where she was <coughs> she was basically pointing out that the way these scientists were looking after these mice was completely against good animal welfare and completely against their natural instincts and I do remember her saying to me um, the scientists were extremely dismissive of her she was the annoying vet who was who was telling them I know what the bit I know about you know about your wonderful research into how to cure you know Parkinson's the bit I know about is how these mice are meant to be living and you're not doing it well in this laboratory and actually you know it's good that you asked this question because what did I do with that information did I try and hide that did I think oh that wouldn't be good for the debate I encouraged her to write an article and I actually got it placed in a newspaper because Mm -hmm. to me the fact that she was employed by the university, she was challenging these very eminent scientists, like you've got okay. this wrong. And and so I wanted the public to know that there are vets. I mean, these people who loved animals all their life, but they work in an animal facility and they work on your behalf, the public. You care about animals. You've seen my cat. You want to make sure that, that these animals are being kept in the best possible conditions. And actually, the animal technicians and the vets do that on your behalf. Yeah. True. Okay. Uh, next question by Sneaky Bear. 
What model would you suggest for separating independently funded science reports from the interference of the communications office? Oh, these are just the best questions. <laughs> It's like I paid a load of your <laughs> listeners. So funny you should say that. Um, when I was writing the book, I thought I should do a bit of work here and see if there is, exactly as your questioner asks, any model. Is there any precedent? Because otherwise I'm going to lose this argument. Um, and I discovered a model. Um, and I've looked into it more and more, and I'm really excited by this. So um, actually, it wasn't necessarily uh, driven by science, but go go back two decades. Apparently, there was a massive row about the official crime statistics mm -hmm. and the official unemployment statistics. So we in this country gather official statistics on loads of things, you know, knife crime, all, all these kind of things. And basically, successive governments, not, not you know, one or the other, just kept, so they, they employed these people to gather the statistics, people like the ONS and others. <clears throat> But in the same way that I'm saying science, this is happening in science, the statistics, when they came out, were given to the government, and then the government announced the, you know, I don't know, the monthly unemployment stats or the monthly crime stats, and they spun them. They spun them. Um And that was what was reported. And I think in that case, I mean, I, I unfortunately, I don't have a, I don't have enough politicians on my side or editors on my side to make the similar fuss. But I think there was a massive fuss about the fact that these are, you know, back to this question of who owns these. These are national statistics. They should be owned by society, but the government are keeping them as their own and spinning them and misleading the public. So a bunch of people to whom I'm very indebted got together and actually one of them, Sheila Bird, who's an amazing statistician who's at the Royal Statistical Society, she says, Fiona, don't say this wasn't easy, it wasn't easy, but we got together, the Royal Statistical Society got together a bunch of people and they were, again, I, I said earlier about the Human Fertility and Embryology uh, Act being reviewed and, and, and a new act coming in, this happens every so often, there was a new Statistics Act coming out and this group got into that act that national official statistics should be communicated communicated separately to the government machine. Mm. Apparently that was ignored. So, so it was ignored too often by governments. It was there, but it was just being ignored. So they got together again. And by 2017, I'm told all of this, I haven't looked into it all myself, but I'm told all of this with trusted sources, there was a new code of practice for official statistics and that reinforced it even more strongly and now guess what i looked at the other day that the um uh, somebody did a survey about trustworthiness and public trust in in information in the pandemic and it was so, like 94 of people said they trusted the ons um and and there was obviously a lot of now the ons put out their stat. And remember, they had death stats on a Tuesday and um, prevalence stat, like how many infections, I think, on a Thursday or, sorry, a Friday. Twice a week, every week, they put out their stats and never once did they hand them to government. They put them out raw and then the government would, that, that day, Boris would respond to them at his thing. So they have got already 
what we want, what I want. They've got the principle that the raw data, the raw scientific evidence be put out there and that the government can spin away. Then the government communications machine can look at that data at the same time as everyone else does and prepare their lines and their spin. It doesn't stop them from doing that, but it allows us to also, and scientists and others. So that's what I'm really, really hoping. And I'm working right now, I'm talking to people about could we get, just extend that um, lovely principle and that model. Okay. Uh, along those lines, I think Igor's question fits in nicely here. He asks, should we go hard on scientists to make them present their findings in more approachable form? Or should we leave it to science communicators and journalists to do so? Great question as well. These are the best questions. Uh, great question. I think if I, if I sit anywhere on that it is actually to let science communicators and journalists do that for them i i don't like it and i've been on many panels where people are saying we've got to make scientists speak english and you know speak in an accessible way <clears throat> and i worry about that because of course they're trained they're trained to have a kind of scientific language um, that they use to communicate and it's it allows them to do good science um, now, some of them are just very good at it. You know, we, we've been talking about a range of scientists here. If you've got clinical researchers, they tend to do research, but they also have patients every day. So they've just become very good at it. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of myths about scientists being bad communicators. I mean, some of them are absolutely brilliant. Um, but if, I, if I'm asked, I just think that let the, sci and at the Science Media Centre, when we have briefings, we have 200 press conferences during COVID, we really encourage the scientists, stick to your science. Don't make, you know, with the Science Media Centre, please don't apologise for talking about your science. Mm -hmm. And then, honestly, Nick McDermott from The Sun, who's great, he's on our board, will say, mate, mate, I didn't understand that. Let me tell you what I think you said and you tell me if it's right. And that's the lovely thing about our briefings. He then says what they think. They say, no, you can't say that. That's absolutely wrong. And he says, right, well, I've got 600 words in tomorrow's paper and I want to get this right. Help me. And then there's a back and forth. And I remind them on the panel, you're not talking to your, your you know, fellow scientists here. You're talking to sun readers. So give give him a bit, you know, allow him to. Um, and, and by the end, they get a form of words that is accurate and will be accessible to sun readers. So, so I don't want, I don't think the way to deal with this is to get those scientists to speak in sun language. Let's get them to speak in science language and then let it be a negotiation. That goes back to one of the very first things I said two hours ago or whatever it was about the media will do science better if scientists do the media better. You know, talk to these journalists, help them to get it right, have that back and forth. And also, you know, I think, you know, some of these science journalists, that they're brilliant and they feel their job is to translate science to their particular readers. That's their skill. That's their yeah. trade. And they want to do it. So let them do it. And, and I, I think if, if we ask scientists to develop that skill set, it will come at the cost of other skills. And we shouldn't, that, that's why we need science journalism. Absolutely. I like that. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. If they, if they, and that you see that all the time that people are persuaded to go down this avenue and then they get used to that avenue. And then, yeah, let's yeah. not do that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think actually our next question, we can just confirm. We just discussed this. It's a follow-up question also from Igor, who asks, do you think scientific community is getting better at presenting their side to the press? And what do you think they should do even better? Well, I just, I, I do think, I mean, if you read the book, if any of you read the book, I think you will find that the last chapter on the pandemic is actually extremely positive. And I didn't think when I when I when I set out to write this book, there are a lot, you know, the first question was, what do you tear your hair out? There is yeah. a lot to tear your hair out a bit about. But I think I'll tell you what I think happened in the pandemic, and we shall see whether this continues. I think that very, very good scientists saw possibly for the first time very, very clearly that being good scientists is not enough. You have to do good science. You have to develop that vaccine. You have to test that drug. You have to understand the immunology of a virus. All of that is very hard science and very important. But you can't just do what those GM scientists did 20 years ago. It's not enough just to develop that technology in your laboratory and let others communicate it. You also, and the link between doing that good science and communicating it was more clear because if the public didn't understand about that vaccine, they wouldn't take that vaccine. If they didn't understand that certain drugs didn't work, hydroxychloroquine and other other, other drugs, dexamethasone did work and how that, that had been tested, then they're not going to take those. So the link between uh, doing your science and, and getting the public to embrace that was critical because if the public didn't trust science and didn't follow follow what science was saying, we weren't going to get out of this mess. And I hope that survives. I hope we don't get scientists who go back into thinking the most important thing I do is in the lab, and, and probably it is the most important thing they do, but, but also an important thing is explaining that to the public and bringing them with you. Good. I think we've reached a point where we can actually come to a nice conclusion. I like Sneaky Bear's question for that. So let's do this as the last question tonight. He asks, or she asks, apart from <laughs> changes that you've had a hand in, are there any positive trends you've noted in science reporting in the media or has it stayed the same or even gotten worse? Oh, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. You've, you've sussed it, Gerald, that this I'm going to be positive about that. It's so positive. Um, I mean, look at the number of science journalists who, when they reported a preprint, um, said it was preliminary research that hadn't been checked, you know, telling the audience, look at the front page of the sun um oh god i can't remember the number now which is annoying but where they talked about the risk of getting a blood clot mm -hmm. um from taking the astrazeneca vaccine and they put it the real number and it was like i don't know it was a million million you know on the front page of the sun there was a statistic um uh, yeah it's got so much better than it was 20 years ago and and what i said earlier about the the fact that editors um, value their science and health and environment specialists. And, you know, we haven't talked a lot tonight about climate change and environment and biodiversity. You know, the environment journalists are just as important in this way. They trust them and they are 
equal now, I think, or nearly equal to the political journalists and the education correspondents. Um, that, I think, has made the big difference. The, the Going back to, again, my, my first um, example from tonight, when we started, there was a, there's a group called the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology, and they had done a report on who covered GM in its early years, 1998, 99, 2000. Uh, what, a good, what a good thing to do. They just looked at who reported it, and the vast majority of media reports about GM in those years was from consumer affairs, who mm-hmm. basically cover kind of food and diet and um, political journalists and general news reporters. And I think now, if you've got genome editing in crops or GM trials, that the, the, the news desk says, oh, that's GM or genome editing. We're giving that to the science journalists or the health journalists. So I'm really, I'm actually really optimistic. Good. Now, um, we do have one final question, actually. <laughs> we can provide a link of where to buy the book. But there is a question, is there an audiobook of your... There isn't. And actually, I've got I've got various girlfriends and two of them now only read audiobooks and they keep emailing me saying, oh, thank you for sending me your book, but I want an audiobook. <laughs> so maybe I need to speak to the publishers about this and see if they can do it. OK, would be interesting. I think we have several people in our midst who enjoy audiobooks or like to listen to them on long drives. So, yeah, indeed. I will talk to my publisher about that. Good. So I think that concludes tonight's event. Thank you very much, Fiona. It was really enlightening and really enjoyable. So thank you for that. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook follow at SITP on Twitter or head to our website at sitp.online where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>